Hello there, I'm Liam Geraghty and welcome to Inside Intercom. This week we're bringing you an episode from the archives, taking a look back at some of the standout conversations we've had over the years. We're revisiting this episode from Scale, or series dedicated to the strategies and frameworks that drive business growth. In this episode, Intercom's Director of Customer Support, Caitlin Peterson, sat down to chat with Katie Sullivan, who at the time was Yelp's Senior Vice President and General Manager of Local Revenue before she made the move to the real real. Their conversation covered a variety of great topics, including why, at a certain time of growth, companies need to create a customer success organization that can focus on growing existing customer relationships as a means to growing revenue. Katie also shares the wild tale of Yelp's first forays into international markets and how it came to make the really difficult decision to reverse course. It's a really amazing story of going head-to-head with the tech behemoths of our time and surviving the battle. If you enjoy our chat with Katie, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by following us on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to me now. Katie, we're delighted to have you as a guest here on Inside Intercom. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Indeed, and thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be here at Intercom. So I'll take you way, way back. I studied art history at UC Santa Barbara, and I pursued a master's degree abroad after graduating and got my master's degree in ancient European art. So I lived in London. I actually wrote my master's thesis on the fine and decorative arts of the Burgundian dukes. (laughs) As you can imagine, it's not uh, a lot of transferable knowledge. Um, And I moved back to the Bay Area where I grew up after finishing my degree. And I sort of just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I knew that I didn't want to work in the field of art history. Uh, After taking a couple interviews and a couple different career opportunities in that space, it seemed pretty evident to me that that was not going to be the right path. And I remember my mom, who's a scientist, said... What about technology? You grew up in this area and you could go get a job at one of these startups. And so uh, she actually is an excellent motivator. She sat down and said, Katie, you can live with dad and me as long as you want, which is the perfect motivator to get me off the couch, wipe my tears and go put my uh, resume online and got a phone call from a recruiter who uh, was recruiting for entry level sales positions. She sent me on the interview to Yelp. I walked in the door and I thought, oh, this looks like a youth hostel. There's a dog running around. People are casual, open floor plan. This is back in 2007. Yelp was probably about 30 or so people. And I decided I would take this sales job that I interviewed for. And so I started as an entry-level salesperson. And it was a pretty steep learning curve, having two scientists for parents and then studying art history. There was a lot I did not know around startups, around being in business. But I did see some early success, and the company was growing, and we had decided to open up a New York office. So although I had only recently relocated back to the Bay Area, I decided I'm in my early 20s. Of course, if the company asked me to move to New York, I would definitely go. Lo and behold, the company asked me to move to New York. Uh, I was about eight months in, and I called my uh, boyfriend, and I said, we got to break up. I'm moving to New York. I would later marry that boyfriend. (laughs) But (laughs) so in 2008, I moved into sales management and we were doing some 
what I would call small scaling of the uh, New York office at that point in time at Yelp. And in early 2010, we took on a Series E. I think we took on about $25 million. And we decided to go out and really scale up the business. At that point, we'd learned that we could really scale revenue through headcount. And we decided we would open up an office in uh, Phoenix, Arizona to do that. So I packed up from New York and, again, left that uh, same boyfriend and (laughs) said I'm moving to Phoenix to go scale out Yelp. And I did just that. I think in 2010, we went from zero to about 300 people in, I think, 10 months. So I would consider that sort of a chapter of my career of just rapid scaling and expanding, figuring out playbooks and, you know, figuring out when technologies and systems break. And towards the end of 2010, I moved back to New York uh, because we decided we were going to go ahead and scale our office there. Originally, uh, we only opened up a small office in New York because we used to have a large part of our business that was a display advertising business. And we realized that sales was actually going really well for our local sales playbook in New York. So I moved back there to scale that business out. So from 2010 to 2014, I kind of did wash, rinse, and repeat and scaled out New York you know, new office space, all the things uh, that anybody who's lived through rapid growth that has experienced. And we went from about 30 people to I think about 450 from 2010 to 2014. And around that time period, I was really looking for my next challenge, having a lot of conversations with my boss at the time. And he said, hey, we opened up this European business about two years ago, and it's really struggling. Any desire to go figure that out? Now, I was married to that then-boyfriend who I kept moving away from, uh, convinced him to move to Europe with me. So after two years in Europe, my husband needed to move back to San Francisco because he is a startup founder. He had finally kind of hatched up and started baking out his next idea, so it was time to move back to San Francisco And I knew at that point in my career, I really wanted to improve some of my operational and financial literacy. So I talked to my then boss about, uh, you know, maybe it was time to move on and pursue a different opportunity. I'd been with the company a really long time, but it turned out this opportunity to run our post-sale organization, customer success and customer experience emerged. And we were in this really interesting place as a business where we were billing out about $40 million of monthly revenue. And that meant that 10 basis points of churn was actually more important than 10 percentage points of new revenue on the uh, in sales. So had a couple of incredible years running our customer success team, did a lot of operational changes, which we can talk more about if you want. Now I sort of run the gamut. So I've got sales, customer success, support, uh, revenue operations, and sales training and enablement. So that is 12 years of career packed into, I don't know, what was that, three minutes? (laughs) Well done. Yes. Well done. It's such an exciting journey. And it's so interesting because in many ways it has these parallels to Yelp's explosive growth and going into these new markets, which we will touch on um, as you kind of adventured into new markets uh, yourself along with that boyfriend, Mm -hmm. uh, now husband. uh, Who I now like to refer to as my ex-boyfriend since (laughs) he is, in fact, my husband. There you go. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, you know, I think it's so interesting to dive into this sort of new business, then over to customer success and back. So let's dive in there. So, you know, at Yelp, like many of our listeners, you are really responsible for figuring out how to accelerate revenue. And as mentioned, you've moved from new business, local and up over 
to existing and now back in this kind of head of local space alongside customer success. So zooming out, it would be great to get your take on really the value that you see is added to a company by a customer success team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great question. I would say at an incredibly high level, like the highest of you know 50,000 foot level, People buy relationships, and they continue to buy relationships. Even in self-service models, there's a relationship that they're feeling with your product. And so relationships with our customers are really kind of the gasoline that can drive the corporate engine. I mean, that's what brings feedback to our product team. That's what, you know, drives big decisions on roadmaps and how to plan for different customer segments, all that type of stuff. I would say on a, on a really tactical level, when I think about it at Yelp, I think the customer success team drives education to our customer base, feedback from our customer base, and product adoption. And it doesn't matter what form that comes in. If somebody's calling in because they're really upset or they submit a ticket because they're frustrated or, you know, are experiencing a bug or something like that, you sort of do the same thing that uh, a sales team would do or any customer-facing employee would do, which is listen understand what's happening with your customers, educate your customers, drive product adoption, and then share feedback. Um, It's the same thing you would do on an outbound call into a customer if you're pursuing expansion revenue. You would listen, you would understand what's happening, you would educate, you would drive adoption, and that might include upgrading budgets. But what's embedded in all of that is building a relationship with your customer, listening to your customer, sharing what you hear internally. And when you get into a beautiful flywheel of that, the customer success organization can be a massive driver, not just a ticket taker and not just a call answerer and a firefighter. Absolutely. And I think we've really seen the emergence of this, you know, customer success space really explode over the last few years. So one question I'd love to dive into is how you've approached segmentation within your customer success organization to allow for a more singular focus and ultimately success. Yes, it's a great question. And what what really struck me early on in trying to unpack how we were running our customer success organization when I took it over is um, I don't think there actually is one single formula for success that applies to all businesses. Every product is different. Every business is different. And businesses go through different life cycles where different formulas might make sense. If you take into consideration where Yelp was when I took over the post-sale part of the organization, I mentioned at the top, we were doing close to $600 million in revenue. We were billing about $40 million monthly out of the local segment. And that's a really different world than, you know, even when you were, Caitlin was brand new at Yelp and we were a tiny startup. I think we were doing maybe $10 million in revenue. And so the formula that worked at that time period was probably a lot more similar to what startups experience in general. You do things that are intentionally not scalable so you can go extremely deep with your customer base and really deeply understand every problem that you need to solve for your customer. Then you get to a phase uh, as a company, like where I was when I uh, took on the organization, where we had grown and we were publicly traded and it's a totally different ballgame. So the way that I thought about segmentation uh, at that point in time had a lot to do with operational efficiency, you know, all with the solving the problems customers at the center of the whole kind of equation. But we were at the stage where we had a couple iterations of a relatively unscalable model that we had tried to 
sort of fix and scale differently in order to meet the scale of the customers that we were selling. But we were still not answering all the phone calls that were coming in because we had 120,000 customers. So we weren't answering all the phone calls. We were slow to get back to our customers. And that's a pretty frustrating experience. So first and foremost, um, I had to try to understand just on a sheer logistical support level, how are our customers experiencing our business and our support levels? Then I started to think a lot about the actual mandate of managing churn. So for us at Yelp, we managed everything monthly because we had contracts that were on a monthly basis. Uh, And we essentially said churn is our lost revenue. Subtract out any positive revenue we got from upselling in the existing revenue base divided by our monthly managed revenue. So what I really did was just take out those basic functions of the equation. I said our monthly managed revenue is basically just support and tickets, uh, answering phone calls, getting back to customers when they have issues. Upsold revenue is its own team with expan- responsible for expansion revenue. And lost revenue needs to be its own team with 120,000 customers and tens of thousands of phone calls. We need to be we have a singular focus on how we actually manage revenue that's being you know put out the door. And so that's really how we broke it down uh, during that time period. We have, in fact, continued to iterate and change uh, as the business has grown and changed. But that's how we broke out the different segments. What we were also seeing, which I imagine lots of listeners who are you know intimately acquainted with the post-sale side of the business, was um, competing priorities and unintended consequences of incentives within an organization. So I'll give you a couple good examples of that. The first is um, imagine if you were responsible for a book of business of 700 accounts. And these 700 accounts are all small businesses who are advertising on Yelp. When one of these customers calls in and you're on the phone with them and they're saying, oh, I'm, I'm upset about a bad Yelp review I got. And also, I don't understand how this part of my ads program is working. Uh, and you say, OK, let me, uh, you know, I'm going to follow up with you in a couple or in a day or in an hour or whatever. And you hang up the phone. Then you get another phone call and it's a business that says, hey, I'd like to actually grow my business more and I'd like to spend more money. And you say, OK, let me help you take care of that. Then you hang up the phone. Then you get another call, and that call is, hey, I'm doing a search, and I'm actually not seeing my ads on the site. Where do you spend your time? I mean, there's so many competing priorities. And so inevitably, at at scale, you get people who gravitate towards what part of the conversation they like the most. And when they're completely overwhelmed with too many competing priorities, they're not going to get all of them done. So that that was kind of the first part of splitting what I mentioned before around splitting around or splitting up the churn equation. The other thing that we are seeing is when folks are being held to a metric, so in this case, folks are being held to churn in their book of business, you can sometimes see unintended consequences of what incentives you put in front of them. So uh, one example where we saw this come through was a client would call in and say, hey, I have budget that I want to spend this summer. I'd like to upgrade for a couple of months. Then the CSM who answers that phone call thinks, I'm still going to be responsible for this business in a couple of months, and that's going to hit my churn number in three months. So actually, I don't want you to upgrade because I don't want to take a hit on my churn number. I want to continue to be successful today, next month, and the month after. And so that's obviously not good for that business who wants to get more customers from the platform. That's not good for Yelp because we're not maximizing revenue from our customer base. And so you have to be really careful what incentives get set up, particularly at scale. And so those were a lot of the factors that we're leading into landing on a more segmented worldview, giving more singular responsibility to folks and being clear on what incentives we wanted them to pursue. 
Absolutely. I'm stealing this one, but uh, focus breeds excellence. That's something that our SVP of sales here, LB, says all the time. And it's it's so clear that that really helped you and your strategy to make sure that you've got the right incentives tied to the right actions, which ultimately have the right outcomes for the business. Mm-hmm. It's great. And I remember those 700 customers and uh, those <laughs> conversations very well. I think very early on, the uh, litmus test was... We had one uh, early account manager named Darnell, and it was, we don't know what the right accounts per head ratio is going to be. We're just going to keep giving Darnell accounts until he cries. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, you know, Katie, again, because you've, you've worked in all of these different spaces sort of across the revenue spectrum, how do you think about reducing churn and increasing expansion alongside acquiring new revenue? You know, these are in many ways very similar teams, but in other ways, very, very different, right? Mm -hmm. So there's this natural tension. There's a balance that needs to be struck. Can you bring that to life for us in your experience? Definitely. I've always described sales and CS as same, same, but different. And, you know, I would say there are some critical differences, especially for any listeners who are running an organization that has both elements uh, under their umbrella, or if you've run one and you're moving to the other. It's really important to remember Folks sign up for a sales job for a reason, and other folks sign up for support and customer success for a reason. And the incentives that those different personality types respond to and the importance of financial incentives versus social incentives versus, you know, customer incentives are really different in each organization. So that that's part of what makes them different. Um, what makes them the same is They really want to see the company that they're a part of succeed. They really like interacting with the customer. They are often very competitive, just in different ways. And zooming out a little bit, I would say there's always, always, always inherent tension between sales and post-sale. Even if it's the same person managing the relationship from start to finish, and we have a number of these roles uh, across the organization, we call them hybrid roles, there's still tension that takes place as soon as the rubber hits the road and the product gets used and the billing is transpiring. Uh, it's, it's a different thing. And so I do think you can run the risk of the tail wagging the dog in both directions. You can run the risk that the sales tail wags the dog and you can run the risk that the customer success tail wags the dog. Uh, and it is difficult to really find the right balance for each each different business. But like a lot of things in business and in life, I do subscribe to uh, Hegel's dialectic. This is where my art history degree comes into play, which is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So I really do think that there is a balance that can be found as long as you can be thoughtful about like, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What's the opposite of that? And how do you synthesize these two things to find the middle ground that will help you unlock the growth that you want to unlock for your company or for your customer? Beautiful. Well put. And great to see you weaving that art history background into into your day life. That education was not for naught. There you go. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that... All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise. Old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. 
I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service, and it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. So, you know, we talk a lot about customer centricity, how to bring that into your strategy, how to implement it at the executive level all the way down. How have you worked to bring this customer centric mindset to the leadership team uh, at Yelp and, uh, you know, as a means to drive the type of outcomes that you're looking for in your role? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. Yelp is a two sided marketplace. So we have two customers. One customer for many years got a lot more of the attention from us internally, and that is the consumer customer, the actual folks who are going on to Yelp and saying, I feel like a great cup of coffee nearby and or I need a plumber or whatever it might be. And I would say uh, we always have had a very strong DNA internally of making sure that that customer need is met with strong advocacy for that customer uh, across the board. I would say we are making massive improvements in the last couple of years in really thinking through and prioritizing our other customer, which is our small business customer. And these are the people that run those coffee shops or the plumbers that uh, operate those businesses. And, you know, I think that internally, I've always been a pretty strong advocate for those customers, in part because that's just the world I came up in at Yelp. I've been talking to our customers since the day I started. And so, you know, there's lots of ways you can go about this. I think there's some really, really cool structural ways to approach this within a company. For example, I know eBay was always there. We have a lot of ex-Ebayers at Yelp was always well-respected for having what's called eBay Live, which is an annual or biannual event where the top sellers would come in to HQ. They would spotlight them. They were like movie stars internally. It would be like, oh my gosh, Caitlin P., you're the one who sells all the reusable cups and spoons. We love you. We love your work. We love your the marketplace you've created. And so I think that some of those types of things, we are starting a program called Yelp Voices, which is very similar. So I think having these types of structural things that really celebrate your customer are really important. I also think a lot of beta feedback from, or I guess feedback on beta products from customers and having beta communities. I know Square has done a really nice job of that. And make sure you're getting really tight feedback loops. Having things like user research teams that actually go out and bring you statistical research and marketing survey data. I think those are really nice structural ways to do it. Uh, But I also think it's internally about just championing your customer. I mean, if you sit in a meeting with me in in a conference room at our uh, headquarters, you'll definitely hear me use phrases repeatedly like, based on my intuition of our customers, I think, blah, 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 blah. Or uh, if I can be an advocate for our small business customers in this conversation, I would say blah, 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 blah. And so just making sure people understand who these customers are. I think in our case, the first part of our marketplace that I was talking about, the consumer, 
everybody can sympathize with that because everybody is a consumer, but not everybody is a small business owner and not everybody has spent a lot of time talking to our small business owners. So it's really important that you have advocates who are well-respected, who can go out and kind of spread the customer gospel as it were. It's great. We had Mike Redboard from HubSpot on a previous podcast, and he talked about making intentional decisions about the expensive things you're going to continue to do. And I think some of these activities or actions is a great example of the the one or two places to continue to go big and perhaps be expensive to bring that customer voice um, to the forefront. All right. So, Katie, going back to Yelp and its journey over um, so many years, you know, the business expanded into new markets across the U.S. and really had its sights on international domination and has since changed course. So it'd be great to get your perspective on what drove that decision and why Yelp ultimately decided to stop uh, pursuing that. Yeah. Um, So we, like many companies, especially consumer internet companies, had our sights set on international growth. I think for many companies, it's a great way to pretty immediately expand your TAM and That's always great uh, for investors and for shareholders. And like most ambitious consumer internet companies, we absolutely wanted to fulfill big dreams of uh, being an international brand and still do. So we launched the user side, so the actual just functionality of Yelp and writing reviews. I think as early as 2010 was when we initially went to Ireland and then the UK. And then sure enough, kind of every quarter or so, we were adding on new countries. Yelp today exists in, I believe it's 14 countries, and you can use Yelp in any of those countries. In 2012, we decided to open up business operations and actually start monetizing in some of those countries. And then in 2016, we decided to pull back on monetizing. So we just pulled back sales and marketing, but we've kept the actual user site open. And what led us to kind of halt investing in uh, some of those areas is very complicated. Um, We could probably spend like a two-hour podcast uh, session talking about that. We can get Jeremy in here. But if I were to kind of try to summarize it, you know, I would start with accountability for some of the things that we didn't do quite right when we went international. The first was probably a pretty common refrain if you talk to most American companies who try to go international, which is we tried to fit an American-shaped peg into a European-shaped hole. We basically, you know, said we just translate the materials into Italian and French and Spanish and change to the British spelling and then convert from dollars to pounds and dollars to euros and everybody go have at it. And turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, we did learn fairly quickly that that was happening, but I think we probably didn't course correct as quickly as we should have. Now, in addition to that, uh, we didn't have a lot of time to course correct in part because we had some headwinds blowing against us on the sort of macro level. At the time, our model for growth was extraordinarily reliant on Google for SEO distribution so that users could find out about Yelp. And there were some pretty anti-competitive behaviors taking place on Google's search algorithm, for which the uh, European Trade Commission has continued to keep an investigation open almost single-handedly due to some of the government outreach efforts that we've sort of mounted abroad. And some of that actually has translated back to the U.S. to reopening up the FTC investigation against Google. So um, what that means in sort of less jargony terms is Google was making it really hard for us to get our name in front of users and to get users to learn about Yelp. And because that was so much a part of our user acquisition model, 
with that being inhibitory, it was really difficult with the top of the funnel being kind of, you know, narrowed. So I often like to describe us as medium tech. You know, Yelp is a well-known name, but we do not print money the way that some of the big tech companies do. We're not Facebook. We're not Google. And so we oftentimes, A, get hurt just like the little guys in some of that anti-competitive behavior, and B, have to be really thoughtful about how we're spending our money and time. So what we decided after about four years or so in Europe was to stay focused on U.S. in terms of monetization, marketing, all that kind of stuff. In part, you know, you have the largest consumer economy in the world under a single language and a single currency. So why wouldn't you make your life simple and make sure you are winning there before you try to make it more complex and take it to other markets, other currencies, different tax structures, all that type of stuff. And so we just decided, hey, let's really double down our efforts here. Let's make sure we're winning here. And then once we feel like we have really effectively unlocked a new user acquisition model that's not as reliant on Google, then we'll go back abroad. It's great. So you talked about this American square peg, European round hole, if I got that one right. Mm -hmm. So any advice for companies that are looking to expand into new markets or any lessons learned about localization that, that you, you know, would like to share? Totally. So I guess I would start with if you're a company that is considering going international, I would say make sure that you're not just doing it for either ego or for sort of artificial fluffing of the TAM. Maybe it's not artificial. It's too harsh of a way to put it because it is actually you know increasing the TAM. But if it's just about showing, hey, we know how to grow and we think we can do it abroad— you are introducing a whole new level of complexity into your business. And unless you have really won in that single largest consumer economy or feel like you have a strong enough foothold, I would be conscientious about introducing that level of complexity uh, until you have pretty clear dominance in the U.S. markets. Now, with that said, I would also say go an inch wide and a mile deep. Make sure you understand that every culture is different, every country is different. And this isn't just in terms of, hey, the language is different. It literally means the value prop of what you bring to your customers may not resonate in other countries. As an example, so much of the value prop that we talk about when we're talking to our customers is we want to help you grow your small business. We want to get you more customers. And if you call a British pub in the countryside who's been there since before America was a country, they're probably not saying, I want to triple my customer base in the next 12 months. And that value prop is just falling on deaf ears. So really understanding what your value prop is within the cultural context of that country um, and make sure you localize, localize, localize. I mean, when I think about selling into Spain, we didn't have a pinchos category on Yelp. And pinchos, for those of you who aren't, you know, total foodies, are a very specific type of cuisine and style of food found in San Sebastian in the Basque region. And you're never going to win in that region unless you have pinchos as a category on Yelp. So just be really thoughtful in terms of how you go to market. Then understand that managing different teams with different cultures is really different. So a great example of this is in the U.S., we have a really robust sales culture with our large sales organization. And a big part of that is giving a lot of accolades and high fives to folks who are succeeding and, you know, setting the pace for the rest of the organization putting their face on a slide in monthly kickoff meetings, you know, high-fiving them in front of their peers, that type of stuff. 
turns out in German culture, it's actually not as well received to be that one person who's sort of lorded above everybody else. And so motivating a German sales employee is very different than motivating an American sales employee. So really understand as you build out organizations internally that you have to be culturally sensitive as well. And then the final thing that relates exactly to that is make sure you hire the right people. Absolutely. Sage advice on international expansion. Thanks so much, Katie. So turning our gaze to the topic of leadership more broadly, I did want to touch on your advocacy personally for supporting women and minorities, uh, emerging leaders in particular. So talk to us a little bit about this uh, side of you and your career. Definitely. So I'm a big believer that uh, any great leader can be judged by the leaders that they've left in their trail. So great leaders don't just lead organizations, they actually create more great leaders. And exceptional leaders do that with people who, you know, maybe are not otherwise culturally recognized as the obvious next choice, like a woman in an engineering business or a person of color who's coming through a white or male-dominated industry. And, you know, some of that is definitely just part of my personality and my personal belief system. I am feminist as fuck, and I really just want to see a world where people can do what they want to do without being edged out unnecessarily. Um, But part of it is also that I am really fucking competitive. And I have, I've seen the numbers just like most people that diverse teams win and you want a diversity of opinions and feedback. And, you know, I also have this experience of being a female in a male dominated industry. And for the most part, pretty often being the only female in a lot of the meetings that I'm in. And I had so many thoughts to myself where I think, geez, I know so many women in this organization or friends of mine who could do this if they were just given the playbook. So I think the sort of summary of all of those experiences and thoughts have led me to kind of making this a personal cause and a personal, um, I guess, concept or topic that I'm a champion of for us internally at Yelp. It's amazing. So important. Great to hear your perspective. So speaking of this kind of leaving a trail of amazing leaders behind you, you know, who did this for you? Was there someone in your career that really kind of handed you a playbook, gave you the right opportunity, uh, moved you across the world 10 plus times? (laughs) Uh, You know, so who were these people for you in your career? Yeah, I would I definitely have to give a big shout out to two folks who uh, one of them is an ex Yelper and one of them is still a current Yelper. Uh, the first is Erica Gallos Aliota, who um, was my first manager when I joined at Yelp. And she's still a very good friend and mentor and champion of mine. And she was such an advocate of mine from an early time period. And I think perhaps even more importantly in retrospect, I just watched her get pregnant, have children, and continue to just kick ass at work and just be such an incredible person and sort of unspokenly just set the tone for how it goes down. And I think watching that uh, was a real inspiration. And then, you know, the intentional conversations that she and I had about kind of being a woman in the workplace and all of that um, were very, very influential for me. Um, And then also uh, my boss, Jed Nachman, who's Yelp's chief operating officer, he's always been a huge advocate for me. He's actually a great example that you don't have to be a woman or a person of color to advocate for women and people of color or minority groups. He's a white dude and (laughs) born of privilege, and he knows it, and he knows that he wants to help and tries to figure out every way that he possibly can. 
and he has left a trail of incredible female leaders in his wake at Yelp. One of the other interesting things I think a lot about with this topic, I mean, all diversity is important, but women are not minorities, and we are 50% of the population, and yet somehow we're talked about constantly as as it's women and minorities. Uh, and like, boy, we should really just see women be 50% of the population in all these spaces. So anyway, uh, back to what I was saying, I think both Jed and Erica were great uh, advocates of mine over the course of my many years at Yelp and I'm very, very thankful for them for always lifting me up. And I think a lot about how can I lift as I climb as I'm rising up? Who can I pull up with me and how can I make sure that folks are getting lifted up? I can imagine no better note to close on than an optimistic one. So Katie, as a longtime friend and as someone who's been an amazing mentor to me, it's just so great to have you here. So huge thank you from us to you. Lastly, uh, where can people keep up with your work? Well, um, I'm not really an avid Twitterer. I don't publish articles on LinkedIn or anything like that. You can follow my personal life, which is mostly just photos of my really fucking cute kids, uh, on Instagram at Katie Sullivan, or you are more than welcome to email me, katie at yelp.com. Awesome. Katie, thanks again. Such a pleasure having you here on Inside Intercom. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for hosting me. If you enjoyed our chat with Katie, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by following us on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us now. This is Inside Intercom.